We turn in God's Word this morning to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9. We continue our series on those in Scripture whose names begin with the letter K. A couple of Lord's Days ago, we uh, considered a man by the name of Kish. This morning, we consider another man by that name as well. Last time it was a man... Uh, that we would probably say is, is one that we should hold up, one that we should emulate, one that, uh, whose example is an example of uh, the godly faith that we have just sung about. Perhaps not so much with this man. This man's uh, story upon the pages of Scripture is rather short. The most of what we learn about this man is really through his son. And it is in his son that we come to perhaps ask some questions. Scripture doesn't give us necessarily any definitive answer as far as a statement about what kind of father was Kish, but it seems to, Scripture does seem to load up the evidence for us in in a multitude of ways that to say perhaps this man did not do the job that he should have been doing with his son. 1 Samuel chapter 9. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abel, the son of Zeor, the son of Becheroth, the son of Athanah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. Not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise and go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalasha. But they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalom, but they did not find, but they were not there. And then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. And when they came to the land of Zoph, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. And all that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. And Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we give this man? The bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel... When a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has just come now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. 
people will not eat until he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city, and they were entering the city. They saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. You shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. And then Samuel saw Saul. The Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. Here it is. Here it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. For whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Paul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is it not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scripture this morning. We pray that you'll bless it to our, our hearts, that our, our hearts and our ears will be open, that we may hear your gospel proclaimed to us, that it may have meaning to us, and that it may be clear, that help us to grow in our faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Three things from our passage uh, this morning. First of all, the father like Kish, and we'll note... Uh, the brevity with which Scripture speaks about this man, but then secondly, the son like Saul. Perhaps we see the reflection of the father most clearly in the son. And then thirdly, the questions that this leaves for us this morning as well. First of all, then, the father like Kish. We note three things that are told us about Kish. One, we are told about his tribe. He is from the tribe of Benjamin. It is a small tribe, but particularly at this time, because just previous to this, a civil war has taken place. The rest of the tribes of Israel gathered in war against the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, such was the devastation of the tribe that there was but 600 men left in the entire tribe. If you go back and look at some of the numbers of the sizes of the tribes, and there, there were those in the 20,000s, 30,000s, 60,000s. Even Benjamin's was in those numbers as well. But the Civil War so devastated the tribe that they were left with but 600 men. And that's it, men, no women. They were all killed. In fact, wives for those 600 had to be gained from... Uh, one of the other tribes, uh, one of the cities from the other tribes that did not go to war, a place called Jabesh Gilead. Jacob had prophesied in regards to Benjamin that Benjamin would be a ravenous wolf. You think about that, as, 
as far as the, the picture of it, it's the unsatisfying appetite of the wolf that stalks and hunts its unsuspecting prey. The cause of the Civil War basically was because Benjamin was a ravenous wolf. That's his tribe. So later on in the passage, when Paul, when Saul says, am I not a Benjamin from the least of the tribes? He's not lying. When he says least, they were. The, the numbers were, were devastatingly low for this particular tribe. And probably his line about my clan being small as well is a reference to the fact that that genealogy that we have back at the beginning of chapter 9 is probably an extensive genealogy, meaning the fact that, yeah, Kish's family was not large. It was indeed not only a small tribe, it was a small family. Now, although it's not noted here in the particular passage we read, we do know the city from which Kish lived or abode in. He was from the city of Gibeah. Now, the reason that becomes important is because that city is actually the whole cause of the Civil War. In the latter chapters of the book of Judges, there is a horrific account of probably Israel's most violent, most heinous crime that was ever committed. It took place in the city that Kish is from, the city of Gibeah. I won't recount all of the details. I'll leave them for you to read in the latter chapters of the book of Judges, but it is horrible. And it is because of the horror of the crime that took place that the rest of the tribes say, we need to do something not only about Gibeah, but all those who would join in like-mindedness with that city. So to be from the city of Gibeah tells us something it tells us this man is still part of that. There's, there's a culture, there's a mindset that was true of that city that, that Scripture is inviting us into and telling us something about the background of Saul and his father, Kish. But it's interesting, isn't it, what Scripture does tell us. We are given a description of Kish. You're not given a description of him physically, we are told but one thing in Scripture. Now, his name is going to be mentioned many times throughout the account of Saul and even into the reign of David. But what he's simply known as is the father of Saul. Nothing else about him is told us except this one line. He is a man of wealth. Some of your versions uh, give other terms that would be indicated there. They give, for example, the idea he was a valiant man, he was a strong man, a mighty man, a man of standing, a man of power. But all of those words really come back to the idea that Kish was a man of wealth. His wealth is what gives him his might. His wealth is what gives him power. This is a man who basically is in control, not because of who he is, but because of his wealth. We probably already are in our own minds are thinking, I know people like that. I know people like that. 
They control the situation. They control the political climate. They control the church climate. They control communities by their wealth. They're men of power. They're men of influence. They're men of strength. They're men of might. They get their way. They don't have to flash a sword. They just flash their checkbook. And people do what they want them to do. That's what Scripture is telling us about this man. He is a man of wealth. This man, Kish, from the tribe of Benjamin, from the city, Gibba. A description is given. Think of all that's lacking. Think of all that we're not told. But you see, we see the reflection of Kish in his son. Now, we know Kish is a man of wealth. I mean, Scripture reiterates that by telling us the account of the fact that he has lost 30 donkeys. Now, to you and I, we'd go, what's the big deal about losing 30 donkeys? Well, for them, those people in that day, donkeys were the sign of wealth. He's lost his wealth. If he's lost his wealth, he's lost his influence, he's lost his power. This becomes something of a pressing need. We have lost our donkeys. Saul, do you understand my circumstance? We need those donkeys. He doesn't entrust this, you see, to any servant. A servant, you see, might just take the donkeys off and sell them. Go off to some foreign country. But Saul, you see, the son has an investment. Saul should care as much about those donkeys as does Kish. So secondly, let's look at the son, like Saul. We'll note first the characteristics, the physical characteristics. What does Scripture tell us? Scripture says he's handsome and he's tall. He's good-looking. He's the best-looking guy in all of Israel. And he is the tallest man in all of Israel. The Scripture is not just giving us that information so that we go, oh, yeah, he's a head taller. Man, that would be interesting to look. You see, that denotes power. A few weeks ago in our men's Bible study on Thursday morning, we were dealing with a couple of these passages and you know, it, it seems like in our childhood, okay, no offense to those of you who this fits the character of, I'm sure you were not this way. But most of us as men said, you know who ruled the roost in our school? The tallest guy. The tallest man was the tallest kid in our class. He was third grade, fifth grade, seventh grade, ninth grade. The tallest kid seemed to be the kid of great influence. The tallest kid was the kid, well, everybody looks up to. So he sort of became the leader. Whether he wanted it or not, he got the job. Israel has asked for a king like the other nations. God is giving them a king like the other nations. They didn't ask for a king of compassion. They didn't ask for a king of spiritual character. They asked for a king like the other nations. What are the other nations' kings like? They're tall. Why? 
Because leaders are tall. That's, they, we, people gravitate. Sinful people gravitate towards them. Think of the whole history of Israel. Think of their, their awe of Goliath. Well, nobody wants to go fight the tall man. Right? Because that, that signifies something. It signifies that that tall kid could beat us up at any moment. So, of course, we're going to do whatever he wants us to do. We're going to follow his leadership because he's the biggest, he's the tallest, he's the toughest. I'll give you a king like the other nations. You want a king who looks good? Fine, I'll give you the most handsome man in all of Israel. That's what Scripture notes in its opening description of Saul. But Scripture doesn't stop there. It continues to reveal not just the characteristics of Saul, but the character of Saul. Let me note three of them that come up out of this passage. First of all, one of the characteristics of Saul is his work ethic. I want you to think about this. The symbol of your wealth, the bulk of your wealth is caught up in donkeys. you got to find the donkeys. Saul, our family needs you to find the donkeys. Saul, I'm not entrusting this job to anyone else. Saul, you're the son. Find the donkeys. What does Saul do? Well, what we're told in Scripture is he visits some locations, stops a place, stops another place, goes throughout Benjamin. Hey, anybody see the donkeys? Nope. Okay, let's go home. That's what Scripture says, right? Saul, hey, been a while. Let's go home. My dad's probably more worried about me than the donkeys. Now, first of all, you've got to analyze the thought process of what Saul's going through. I'm more important than the donkeys. Is he? But we read that description, we might go, well, yeah, Paul, Saul put forth a great effort. And he went all those places. You know how long it's been? Three days. That's all the longer Saul looked for the donkeys and then said, hey, you know what? I think we ought to go home. It's the servant who says, and I think we ought to push on. Saul's work ethic is revealing of his character, isn't it? This is going to be true throughout his reign as king. He's not going to work at it. He's not going to put forth the effort. Do you notice? They don't have any more bread. Think about the planning that Saul must have had. Do you notice Saul has no money? Do you think his dad, do you think Kish actually sent Saul out without any money? He says, you go out, look for donkeys, but I'm not going to give you any bread, I'm not going to give you... Or is it the fact that Saul has not planned, or that perhaps Saul, true to his character, has made other stops and spent his money, and it's all gone? So I'm out of bread, I'm out of money, let's go home. I'm not going to look for donkeys anymore. What a useless thing, looking for donkeys. Who cares about donkeys? Think of the comparison that Scripture gives us of David, one who is the shepherd over the sheep. 
kind of interesting, isn't it, that when the Lord picks the king, okay, the one after his own heart, he picks the shepherd of sheep. When the people want a king like the other nations, he gives them a herder of donkeys. There's so much irony and humor in what God is doing here. Okay, I'll give you a king like you want. They're a bunch of stubborn people. I'm going to give you the herder of donkeys who could care less about the donkeys. Who could care less? Think of David. He's out fighting lions and bears in order to protect his sheep. Saul, let's go home. Let's go home. It's hot. I'm tired. I don't have any food. don't have any money. Let's go home. Think of the work ethic. And, and, and you kind of wonder, okay? You kind of put this back together and you go, isn't it interesting that this rich man who is in control of everything sends out his son, who doesn't seem to be very responsible, to look for donkeys, who then quits after three days? What does that tell you about Kish? In seeing him through the life of his son. But not only is it in terms of his work ethic, think of the spiritual ignorance of Saul. Here is what is most telling. The spiritual ignorance of Saul. We read a few chapters before that the word of the Lord through Samuel was strong and mighty. That none of the words of Samuel fell to the ground. That throughout Israel... Samuel is known. The servant knows there's a seer in the city. Go back and read the chapter. Does Saul? Does Saul know anything about seers? Does Saul know anything about prophets? Doesn't know anything about them. Does Saul even know who Samuel is? No. Even when he meets him face to face. Hey, Do you know where the house of the seer is? (laughs) Uh, Saul, that's me. Huh, didn't know who you were. Now, if Samuel's reputation, and if Samuel is known throughout all of Israel, and if Samuel is going from place to place judging, what does it tell you that Saul does not know Samuel? What does it tell you about Kish? Doesn't it reveal to us the fact that this man is not interested in the spiritual things of life? This man's got his money. He doesn't need God. This man's got his wealth. He doesn't need the Lord. This man's got power. He's in control. He doesn't need Samuel. He doesn't need no prophet. He doesn't need no seer. Nor does his son. Now, if you think we're, we're kind of jumping at things, let me take you to the end of the chapter. Because okay? at the end of the chapter, a- after this little episode, Samuel does indeed anoint Saul to be king, okay? privately. Nobody else knows about it. Okay? Then Samuel tells Saul there's going to be three things that happen that are going to be God's confirmation to you. Okay? 
One of them is very factual. One of, one of them, I mean, in a sense, all three are very factual. They're, they're very straightforward as far as you, you, you wouldn't run into these situations and go, oh, that's just coincidence. No, there, there's too many facts involved. Okay? But when it comes down to the third one, okay, this is what happens. Go down to chapter 10, verse 9. When he turned his back, that is Saul, when Saul turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. Now that ought to be a clue, right? Why does Saul need another heart? Now it's not talking physical heart, it's talking spiritual heart. In other words, God is saying, If I don't open the eyes of Saul's soul, these things are going to happen and he isn't even going to know it. He's not even going to see it or he's not going to care. I'm at least going to give him another heart to awaken him so that he knows what is happening. Pick it up at verse 10. When they came to Gibeah, what, what is that? Oh, that's his hometown. So he comes back home. So these are the people who know Saul. These are the people who watched Saul grow up. They know the family of Kish. They know Saul. They know his character. They know what he's like. Behold, a group of prophets met him. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he prophesied amongst them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied, With the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Do you understand what's going on? See what's happening? The people who know Saul the best, his buddies, they see him prophesy, and they go, you got to be kidding me. Saul? Prophesying? That's so out of character. That's so unlike Saul. How could the son of Kish? Oh, interesting. We have to bring Kish back into it, don't we? Why do we bring Kish back into it? Because this is a family who could care less about the Lord. They care about their money. They care about their donkeys. But they do not care at all about the Lord. And when when God transforms Saul, so that he prophesies. The people, the people are like, I can't believe it. This is, we know Saul. (laughs) We know what Saul's like. Saul don't prophesy. The people of Kish's family are not spiritual people. We all know this. Read on. When all who knew him previously saw him, how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? In other words, where did these prophets come from? Or, to read it a different way, it's to say, How could the son of Kish be one of those who prophesied? How is it possible that a man with a father like Kish 
could be prophesying the word of the Lord. Son like Saul. Oh, he's got all the looks. Very handsome, very tall. King, like all the other nations. But of great spiritual ignorance. He hasn't even been raised and trained to know the prophet of the Lord. God has to give him another heart just so his eyes can see the, the, the obvious truths that God is implanting. But you know, if we stop to think about this in, in terms of the character of Saul, we also see it in his career, don't we? We know this man. This, this is the king of refusal. Samuel has said, you're going to be king. He says, no, 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 not me. Some people think it's just some humility on the part of Saul. No, it isn't. It's resistance to the call of God. He doesn't want to do what God wants him to do. You don't know this. God? King? Why, why should I listen to it? Now, I'm king back at Gibeah. I already got my power. I'm not going to listen to the word of the Lord. And you think you don't think that's true? When Saul comes back, his uncle asks him, Heard you had an encounter with a prophet. What happened there? Oh, nothing. He just told me I was going to find some donkeys. Really? Really? He just told you that, excuse me, that the donkeys were found. That's all he told you, huh? The donkeys were found. The wealth was found. The power was found. That's all he told you? Now this, you see, is a man of refusal. I'm not going to acknowledge the fact that I was... anointed king. I'm going to ignore the fact that I've got this sweet-smelling, perfumey stuff on my hair. Right, the uncle's going, what happened to you? Nothing. The prophet just told me. When it comes to the day of Saul's actual coronation, where is he? He's hiding. I don't want to do what the Lord wants me to do. I'm not going to listen. Think of that character. In his kingship. Think of the fact that he is a king of rebellion. This is the king that the Lord ultimately through Samuel is going to have to come to and say, I've rejected you. Because your heart is the heart is the same of witchcraft. Your heart is the heart of rebellion. Your heart is in opposition to me. He's a king like all the other nations. We see the character of Saul revealed upon the pages of Scripture. And as the character of the Son is revealed, Scripture is revealing to us something about the Father as well. So that leaves us then with some questions for this morning. The first question I would ask is this What are we known for, men? What are we known for? See, if you ask the people of Gibeah, if you ask the people of Benjamin, if you ask the people of Israel, what's Kish known for? Oh, he's a man of wealth. What are we known for? People hear our name. What do they associate it with? 
good looks. That's a fine-looking man. Is it her pocketbook? What are we known for? Tough question that perhaps many of us would seek to avoid, really. People know us for. I think one of the reasons the story of Saul is before us in Scripture is because it always comes back to us. Okay, Father, I'm going to get some nice gifts, maybe a good dinner today, nice cards. Getting a little gift from church. What are we known for? As fathers, what are we known for? The second question would be this. What then do we value? What is it we really value in life? If we ask that question of Kish, the answer would be my donkeys. The donkeys are what is all crucial. He spends more time, more energy, more concern, you see, on his donkeys than he does his son. There is not one word ever exchanged, as far as I have actually found, between Kish and Saul in Scripture, except for, go find my donkeys. What do our children see in us as what is valuable? Is it the precision with which the lawn is done over and against the fact that our child just got on the lawnmower and mowed the lawn without being asked, and yet we would criticize the way in which it's mowed? Is it the fact that our child decided for Father's Day that, man, I'm, I'm going to wash and clean out Dad's car? And all we could say is, hey, you missed a couple of spots here, son. What is it? What is it that we value? What is it that that our children see in us as being of the highest value, of being that which is the most important, of being of that which is the greatest necessity? What is it? What do we place upon the pedestal of our life that is of such great importance that we're willing to to criticize our children because of it. We're willing to to forgo our children. We're willing to look the other way. Men, I'm not asking these questions because somehow or another you'll find here the perfect dad. I got nice cards. But I got to tell you, they weren't all true. Okay? They weren't all true. Good sentiments. I appreciate it from my children and grandchildren, but they weren't all true. We mess up. The question is, do we acknowledge our mess up? What are we known for? Are we known as the father who is always right? Or are we known as the father who knows how to repent? And which of those two do you think, Dad, is the most important? 
Are we known as the father who expects perfection? Sports, whatever it is, car cleaning, lawn mowing? Or are we known as the father of grace? What are we known for? What do we value? What are we teaching? Are we teaching discipline to our children? Are we teaching that stick to Jack Smoes on Monday had a, a devotional on commitment. And, and it was a, a reminder of the fact of that, that stick Intuitiveness. Teach that. Children. And we teach. Ah, it's okay to quit after three days looking for the donkeys and go home and be irresponsible about the whole situation. We teach commitment. To honor our word, to keep our word. Do we demonstrate that? Do we live that? Do we teach? Does the word Christ come out of our mouth at home? Do we speak of Jesus? Not do we speak of church things. You probably find enough to criticize about the pastor at home, about the length of the sermon, the length of the prayer, how many songs we sang. You, you probably find enough to criticize about other people in church. I'm not talking to you talk about church. Do you talk about Christ? Perhaps it's one of the, the great failings of the generation that is passing is the fact that that wasn't the open communication with us. We saw it in their life of commitment to the church, of care for the kingdom of Christ, but there, there wasn't that exchange about Jesus. We need to re-educate. We need to re we need to refocus. And as fathers, we need to speak Jesus to our children so that they're not shocked when they find out it's Samuel. I didn't know who you were. Let's hope and pray that. We so lead our families that on the day that Christ comes, they go, I know you. Dad told me about you. And I recognize you in all of your beauty, in all of your holiness, in all of your purity. And God's people say, Father, as a father, forgive us. Forgive me. Too often, Lord, we have lived in this world as kish, centering our lives and our fatherhoods upon more upon the things of this world rather than upon the things of Christ. Forgive us, Father, and make us like Kish. Oh, not this Kish. Not this man. 
man, Father, who is interested in things yours. The man who worked, revitalized the church. The man, Father, who exemplifies for us love and care. People, God, one's own children. Father, raise within us a vision of Christ. In His name, God's people say, Amen.